pray that you indeed worship the high king of heaven. We're going to worship him in his word as we look at his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. I've been going through this, wasn't sure exactly how this would unfold, but I've gone through it and each one of these, as I've identified at least six elements here, I think they're worth mentioning and focusing on. Today, it'll be this last sentence beginning in verse 18 and going through the second one in verse 19. But this phrase here in 18, as you sent me, I'm in John 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is Christ's high priestly prayer for the disciples that are there in that upper room. This is the night before he is to be crucified. He has been teaching his disciples all along, three-year ministry. This kind of sums it up, wraps up some of his teaching, some of the most important things to be said. And as we talked about before, Jesus also functions as what has been pictured in the Old Testament, uh, a high priest interceding on the behalf of his people, not for the world, but for his people. He will begin, as the high priest did, to bring in prayer and then to bring in sacrifice. This is Christ's prayer. And in a few hours, he will make the sacrifice in his own blood. That's what it's portraying here. It is high priestly prayer, and we'll read it in its context in a minute. But Jesus has prayed already that he might be glorified in his disciples that his disciples would continue to be loyal, to be faithful to those things that he has taught them, that his disciples, as they are together, that they would be unified. He prayed that they would have this great joy that they would certainly need because they were not going out into a really happy place. It wasn't a safe environment. It would be very difficult. They would all be executed, save John, who would be tortured, uh, but remain so that he could write for us the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. He prays, as we talked about last week, that they would be sanctified, that is, set apart to personal righteousness and set apart distinct from the world. He prays for these disciples specifically, they're in immediate view. It will apply to us as followers of Christ, Christians, a disciple, and Jesus makes that plain in verse 20, which we'll pick up next week. It's not just for them, but it applies to us. There is a distinction, and we'll talk about it, that applies to those that were in that upper room, the 11 there. However, it will apply to all those that follow Christ. These specific disciples here in this upper room at this time, they are going to be sent out into the world as or paralleled with how, as the text said in verse 18, as Jesus then was sent out into the world. 
It is no wonder that that statement there of the sending of these disciples follows this prayer of sanctification in verse 17 to set them apart, sanctify them, if you will, in the truth. They will have the truth. They will be set apart unto the truth. They will be then sanctified by it. What is the truth? It is found in Christ's word. Your word is truth. They will need to be sanctified. They will need to increase in their personal and practical righteousness as they are sent out into the world and maintain a certain tension, as we talked about last week, between engagement in the world and a withdrawal or a separation from it. Both need to exist. They will have to be in the world to be able to proclaim and preach the gospel. They will have to engage in the society and culture and they're in. They're not going to cloister away in some sort of monastery. They're not going to be separated in that sense. But they will be distinctively separated in their personal righteousness, in their practice of their life, because they're going to be engaged in the world, but not be corrupted by it. They're going to try to redeem, one at a time, people that they preach the gospel, and thus really redeem those within the culture or discussed here as the world. They have to be very careful of how they walk, of how they live, that they are not corrupted by the influences in which they must go. They function then as as illustrated in Jesus' teaching as both salt and light. Salt in the sense of preserving and redeeming. One of the reasons cultures evil is suppressed is through the righteousness that is brought about by Christ's servants. They are to be light, and that is to provide some sort of guidance towards what? The truth, ever pointing to it through their proclamation. But if they're corrupted, if they're not sanctified, the salt will lose its savor and the light will go dim. It'll lose its brightness. The disciples must then be sanctified. They will not be going with Christ at this time as he goes to be with the Father. They're going to remain. So, they're in the world, they're going to remain, but they will function as emissaries of Christ with this purpose of doing so will be to make more disciples. This is why, beloved, I'll stop here and say, you remain as well. Ultimately, everything that we do is to glorify God. Right? But, but, but what purpose then would it be that you would be remaining here ultimately as a follower of Christ? It is to proclaim Christ. It is to make disciples and call men to repentance and faith. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. 
recognizing that every good gift comes from him. Enjoy your hobbies, your entertainment, fellowship, food, fun, education, career, all kinds of achievements. In other words, engage in the world. Don't withdraw. Engage in the sense that you appreciate all of this that God has given you. Glorify God in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. But don't forget the overarching purpose of why you would remain as the disciples remained, that is, to function as Christ in the world and to make more disciples. These disciples, these Christians, are on a mission. They're sent by Christ, specifically into the world. It begins right here in this upper room. They are called to then walk in the footsteps of Christ. They're on mission. And they're called to bring others. To have them follow Christ. As Paul might say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's read this in the context in which it's given. We'll begin in verse 9 of chapter 17 and go all the way through 19. Jesus says in this upper room, high priestly prayer, I am praying for them, verse 9. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They're yours. All of mine are yours, and, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. That's the world system. But they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and... These things I speak into the, in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself. They may also be sanctified in the truth. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us an understanding of your word that we may grow in grace and the knowledge of you and fulfill those things that you have called us to do with great joy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you'll notice verse 8, you have the word sent paralleled with sent in the second phrase. As, I, as you sent, so I have sent. The word there in Greek is Apostelos, it, it means to send away or dispatch for a goal or a purpose. 
This sending is a commission, and Jesus is focused on the commissioning of these disciples. This commission is a command. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. And the fulfillment of it necessitates a certain, and we'll discuss that, consecration. So here you have the commission, command, and consecration. I've noted that on the back of your worship folder if you wanted to jot down a scripture text or two that we might go through in this. All right, let's look at this commission first. In verse 18, and this word sent, as I mentioned, as you sent me into the world. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father, and he mentions this sending. This word here, as I mentioned, you can hear the word apostle in it, right? Apostelos. You can hear the word apostle. It means sending out. It's used for someone that is going to be an emissary, or from the Latin, someone sent, or on mission. That's the idea of missions. That's the idea of apostle. Eventually, this Greek word becomes a technical term, and it's why it's transliterated, if you will, as apostles. To these particular 11 in that room, and then they would add another, and then Paul would be a, a unique apostle, a unique sent one, sent directly by Christ, who meets him on the road to Damascus. These in that room, and the one that they will add, and Paul, will function in a unique sense as apostle. The word is a general word, it just means one that is sent. So it would apply in that sense. But in here, this is the capital apostles, the the apostles. Ephesians 2.20 discusses about how the church is founded, of course, on Christ. But it says it is on the foundation, Ephesians 2.20, of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets who received his word, the apostles who functioned as the specific emissaries, they had a unique role, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. These in that room will go out and perform similar signs, that is miracles, like Christ, to confirm both their message and the fact that they indeed are a messenger just as Christ did. The scriptures will talk about the the apostles who had specific signs. This was unique for this group. Jesus did signs, you remember, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, who wasn't a fan of Jesus in particular, a ruler of the Jews, but yet he recognized that, as he would say, no one can do these signs unless God were with him. The phony baloney stuff that goes on today by those that claim to have miraculous acts, that has nothing to do with what went on here. It's, it, it was totally different. If you saw what they were doing, you would say, even the enemies would have to say, this is truly a miracle. They were given unique signs. Jesus was sent. 
commissioned by the Father. He was accompanied by signs, if you will, and wonders, which authenticated him as a true emissary of God. These miracles, signs, and wonders, as they're discussed, they were not given to convince a rebellious heart to repent. It does, however, demonstrate that those who reject Jesus Christ have no excuse. Then and now. There's none. You're without excuse. It will take the word of Christ, the truth that is proclaimed by these Apostles and those that would follow in their footsteps, accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring about repentance and faith. And at that state, then the sinner made a saint by the work of the Spirit will then recognize the validity of these miracles. By the way, we included in our creed that Jesus rose from the dead. He was seen by many witnesses, 1 Corinthians 15. You think, I, I don't mean to be flippant here, but I always think, can you imagine if you were there at that time and you saw Christ crucified and then you saw him walking about? I mean, why doesn't he walk into Jerusalem and say, hello, I'm back? I mean, I always wonder that. Because it would do no good. You don't understand. The people are blind. They're deaf. They're dumb. They have no heart that can respond. This is going to have to take a a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the very heart. It isn't just these evidence. These evidences are true. This is true. His word is truth. But it will take the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating, bringing to life, quickening the dead, if you will. But Jesus brings this up, that he he was sent, and of course we know in the gospel record that all that he did was authenticated. But he says here in our text that he was sent by the Father. He makes a point of that. This commissioning comes from the Father. And the point is that there is no higher authority to appeal to. Jesus comes in the very fullness of God. There is no other source to look at for truth. You are looking at truth incarnate when you see Christ. And to deny him then and to deny him now is blasphemy and there is no hope for you. If you're in gospel, we'll we'll look at a few texts today. If you're in John, you can flip back to John chapter 10 and look at verse 36. Jesus points this out in dealing with the Jewish elite, the leaders, if you will, who rejected him and his message, even though it was all accompanied by these works that authenticated what he did, and yet they rejected him. And his response to them in verse 36 was, Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world? 
See how that parallels to verse 18 and 17? He said, the Father sent me into the world. So he challenges them, his opponents. You're saying of him who the Father consecrated and sent in the world? You're blaspheming. You're blaspheming. Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the very works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's my point on the authentication of Christ, his message, and him as a messenger. And there can come through no higher authority. Through the years, God has sent messengers to the world. And here you might find it as Jesus describes it in a very familiar way in his teaching, a parable. Sometimes, or, or a story. It, it, can, it can help to fix this in our mind when we can compare it to some other situation as an illustration, if you will. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, let's look at Jesus' teaching on this concept. God has continually sent messengers, missionaries, apostles, if you will, to proclaim his truth with his authority. But men have rejected And now they're rejecting the greatest, and that is the Son. In Matthew 21, Matthew records for us in verse 23, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, speaking of Christ, and they challenged him. He said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you the authority? The authority is the very authority of God. There is no higher authority. They would need to submit to Christ's teaching of what he says and what he does, as would everyone. Jesus explains this to them in a parable, explains their very heart. If you drop down to verse 33, this really illustrates what's going on. And how awful just this question that they have of Jesus, that is, by what authority are you doing? He says here another parable, verse 33, in chapter 21 of Matthew. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to its tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same. Finally, verse 37, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, 
what will he do with those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I didn't think you need to explain the parable. You get it. They got it too. They rejected the greatest authority. What more could God do than send the Son? It is that authority by which Jesus comes. Jesus, in John, the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this idea of I, you are earthly and I am heavenly. In other words, I come from above, you are from below. Flip back over to, we'll be back to Matthew in a minute. But if you want to flip back over to John chapter 3, or I'll read it for you. Here the greatest prophet, John the Baptist. The people recognized him as an Old Testament prophet. He kind of bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New in our thinking. He was very respected of the people. And here's how he explains who Jesus is. He who comes, verse 31 of chapter 3, he who comes from above is above all. That's Christ. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is from above. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the very words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remain on him. By the way, you see, believe and obey, they're together, they're one and the same thing. You don't believe in something and then do something completely different, right? Obedience is a demonstration that you actually believe. If I believe that this uh, drink is good for me, I, I will drink it, right? Um, if I don't believe it, I might say it, but then I don't take it. That's the idea. A belief and obedience go hand in hand. But my point here ultimately is that this is from the perspective of authority. The Father has given all things over to Christ. There is no greater authority. Jesus is indeed Lord He's given, given a name above every name, and every knee will bow on earth, under the earth, everywhere, and confess that Jesus Christ indeed is Lord. He gives this Lord, who is in complete authority, 
confirmed by the miracles, he gives a commission then to his disciples there. His commission that he gives is based on that authority, and it is not a suggestion. It is not a good thing to do. It's actually a command. And this goes to the second phrase in verse 18 of chapter 17, and we'll flesh it out in Matthew 28 if you want to turn there. Jesus says, first, the Father sent me, and just as the Father sent me, so I have sent them, where? Into the world. The apostles were chosen, commissioned, and then commanded by Christ to go on mission. This commission given as a command is often talked about as the Great Commission. But you might also think about it as the Great Command. It's not presented as an option. This is the sovereign Lord of all, with all authority, making this direction. And most of us have memorized Matthew 28, 19, and 20, but look back in verse 18 of Matthew 28. Notice how it is this commission then is predicated on Christ's authority. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no higher authority. Don't look to anywhere else. Look to Christ. The authority is not just his power, but this excusia, as the Greek word is here used here, it refers to the right of someone who has power both not only to commission somebody, but also to command. It is a royal decree of the sovereign Lord. It is the great commission. It is predicated on the authority of Christ. It is a mandate. And by the way, the way it's structured in verse 19 and 20, we'll look at, this is overall, taken as a whole, if you read it, it is a divine imperative. Imperative simply means a command. And that's the grammatical structure of it as well. Let's read it. Most of you might remember it or have it memorized. Verse 19 of Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, that is ethne, people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Much we can address here, but I just want to point out four items at least. It begins with this idea of going, that's a participle, go, it's translated in English here, and do what? Two, make disciples, or making disciples. Three, baptizing, engaging in that. And fourth, to teach. Let's look at each one. This first one about going, part of this command that Christ gives here, is a participle, and some have translated or understood it as as you go, or as you're going along. 
And that isn't necessarily wrong, but you have to recognize, though, it it means more than that. It doesn't mean just happenstance. There's also an intentionality, and the reason is because it's paired with the imperative in actually the command to make disciples. So it can be thought of really as both. In other words, a lifestyle, as you live your life, as you walk, the charge is to make disciples. So there's an intentionality about the day. Again, as I began this, enjoy food, fellowship, friends, career, hobbies, entertainment, and whatever. But, ha- but the command is to also have an intentionality about your going about about your life, that it would be to glorify God in proclaiming Christ and thereby making disciples. And there is more to making disciples than just proclaiming the truth. We'll get into that in a second in the second part. But notice this go, and I'll, I'll parallel it with Mark chapter 16, and I'll just read it for you. Mark 16, 15 um, concludes this way. Jesus says this, Go... And you can hear the um, imperative command there. Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So here it has even this more imperative sense as it parallels. It helps clarify that there's an intentionality about proclaiming Christ in their life. It is a specific directive to these apostles that they're in the upper room. I, I would agree. However... It is applicable to then all of those that would become disciples, right? They are specific emissaries, apostles with a capital A in the technical sense. They would be given some authentication of their message and uh, them as messengers in the miracles that they are able to do like Christ. So there is a uniqueness to them. However, the purpose of which is to flow over that they would then make disciples and that those disciples would make disciples and those disciples make disciples and that's why you're here today. Verse 20, which we'll get into next week, makes that clear, John seventeen twenty, that I don't pray for these but all of those that would follow. But this is a directive to them to indeed do this. And what is the directive as they go about their life, as they are actually intentional about it? That they would make disciples. That's number two. A disciple, as I've already indicated a number of times, is simply a Christian. A Christian means someone who is like Christ, who follows Christ who has Christ as their objective. A disciple is a learner. It is a follower. That's the term here. Who are you going to learn from and who are you going to follow? Christ. That's who. It's a description of someone who patterns their life, a disciple, after their teacher, the one that they would follow. Patterns their life, in this case, after Christ. It's clearly seen in the relationship between these disciples and Christ, and particularly as he commissions them as apostles, but it is directed to all. 
Paul would tell his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, I'll read it to you. He says, then my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the idea of making disciples, that you would proclaim what you have heard in the presence of many witnesses, that is, as they learn together, and then entrust those to men of faith who will go on and do the same thing, teach others also. This making disciples doesn't mean you have the ability to cause somebody to repent and believe. Of course you don't. But what you do have the ability to do is proclaim the gospel and trust that God's word will not return vain, that you will continually proclaim the gospel faithfully, year in, year out. And whether you actually see fruit of your faith or not, it's really immaterial. Your call is to make disciples, and I'm not going to get into every element of it based on time, but essentially one key part is simply this constant proclamation of the truth. Give people a reason for the hope that lies within them. And guess what? Like I said, you may never see the fruit of faith. My, my father told me a story about how a, a man, a Sunday school teacher, uh, grabbed my father when he was young, and uh, he just had a pile of kids and didn't have much of direction, and he pleaded with him to repent and believe on Christ. He gave him the gospel. Well, it wasn't until years later that my father did come to Christ. And the man that sowed that seed of faith never knew of the fruit in this life. He knows it now. So, again, you may not... I, I pray for fruit of faith, but we, we have no idea. These apostles here, uh, their, their lives were cut off short and had no idea of what... Uh, of how the gospel would... Uh, mushroom and and uh, and uh, fill the earth and fulfill the command that Christ had commissioned them to do, and that is to preach the gospel to all nations. That is all types of people, all ethnic groups, and so forth. Making the disciples then is multifaceted. You proclaim the gospel, and as I mentioned, then call people to repentance and faith. Just call them to trust and believe. Making disciples includes directing them, if you will, to obedience of the faith, as I alluded to earlier. To, to believe means to obey, and, and that has to be taught to people. To encourage them in the faith as they, they go along, particularly the experiences that you have encountered so that you will be able to help one another. That's discipleship. It is, it is praying for them, and that is a key part of the ministry of, of discipleship and this command that we're given is to pray for one another. And I just want to thank those that participate in these regular prayers for the young folks. And if you're not on that sheet, I encourage you to sign up and pray. Um, pray for them. They, they're, they're going into a different world, if you will, than uh, most of us grew up in. I just can't imagine 
the world that my grandchildren are going to have to live in in this culture. They will need great prayer. Be a godly example. That, that's part of this uh, discipleship ministry, to be an example so that they can see one and imitate. Paul mentions that several times and and twice that I'm thinking of specifically in in Corinthians where he says, imitate me. And in another part, he qualifies, imitate me as I follow Christ. That's what he means by that. So, So the question in making a disciple, there is an example of someone who in the real world, the physical world, who is following Christ. What, what does that look like? Making a disciple means to serve with humility. Isn't that how Christ did? In fact, here in this upper room, even, he's, he's doing the lowest task to wash feet, to sacrifice. And obviously, he sacrificed much. Just taking on the form of a servant is a great sacrifice. And beyond that, his sacrificial life. To Making disciples includes sanctifying people in the truth, uh, being uh, uh, pointing to that which will sanctify and consecrate and then charge them to do the same. That's some of the elements of making disciples. This is part of this commission that is given to them and commanded to do. The third thing they have here in this commission is is to baptize. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism, by the way, means immersion or identification. That's why we symbolize it in a pool of water where we can completely immerse somebody in. It, this baptizing is uh, something that they did to demonstrate symbolically what God has done in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit that is immersed or unified with Christ. The waters of baptism function as a spiritual reminder. It is a physical way of pointing to that spiritual truth, Christ, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. The symbol doesn't impart any grace, but it communicates grace, particularly to those who witness and are present. It's much like a wedding covenant ceremony in which the people are gathered together as witnesses, and so vows then are made before God and the witnesses formally there. This command to be to baptize doesn't mean that each individual disciple is going to be part of that, but it necessitates a community that is a body of Christ in which that is carried out, in which an elder baptizes someone and there is a witness of the saints who affirm that uh, union with Christ. Notice it says specifically it's enumerated Father, Son, and Spirit. God exists as three persons. The one God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there's only one God. That is the triune statement. 
to add that to this ceremony of baptism indicates that there needs to be a content to those that profess Jesus Christ as Lord. This is one of the reasons we don't baptize infants. And we're also reluctant to baptize children. Because I want to wait till they can understand what in the world they are doing to where they can communicate. In fact, one of, that's one of the things that we do. We'll have some baptisms soon, Lord willing, uh, for friends get back off on their trip. But uh, we'll work and pray for them. But you'll see in baptism, when we do it here, the person that is baptismal candidate gives their testimony. They give their testimony about their salvation, how they came to Christ, what Christ means to them. And at the very end, I ask them, what is your confession? And then they'll say, their confession is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord indeed. It is a beautiful ceremony. But who is Jesus? Right? There's a certain content to the faith. The need to understand and agree on an orthodox understanding of, of who God is. That is foundational and fundamental. And then the fourth thing, of course, is then to continue to teach. The teaching begins, right? They, they, know, they know enough about the, the nature of God, and which, is, which is somewhat complex. But they'll continue in making disciples to be learners, It's part of the faith that you will continue on in learning and being taught. This is why this is essential to what we do. We're not trying to be erudite about information and education, but those that follow Christ will need to learn about Christ. The source, of course, is the truth. It comes from the Word, and we'll communicate it to uh, the folks as they mature in the faith and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to this last point in John 17, and it can be a bit confusing here. First, Christ commissions his disciples. He commands them to go on mission and then you have verse 19 of chapter 17 where it says that there is a, in the translation I have, it says consecrate and sanctify. So let's look at this idea of consecration. For their sake, Jesus says, seventeen nineteen, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now the word consecrate in the ESV and sanctified you might think of them as two different things. Some of your translations are going to say sanctified and sanctified. The reason is because it is the same word in the original language, hagiadso. We discussed that last week. It means, essentially, comes from the word holy. It can refer to a moral state of righteousness, which includes separation from that which is necessarily unrighteous. But it also conveys the idea of separation, if you will, unto. And that's really what's being referred to here. And I think the reason the ESV wanted to use the term 
sanctification, I mean, consecrate for Christ instead of sanctification. Consecration means set apart, dedicate in the English, it means set apart, dedicated to service or worship for spiritual religious purposes. And I think that's the point. He's set apart to do this. But the, um, the disciples are also said to be separated, sanctified, if you will, or you could translate that consecrate. I like the way the NET Bible, N-E-T, you can find that online. That's the point of the NET Bible. You can get it in printed form, too. But I like the way they word it. Some English translations are afraid to change familiar passages and so forth too much. Um, The Net Bible translates this verse 19 this way. And I set myself apart on their behalf so that they too may be truly set apart. Interpretively, I think that's the, the thrust of what sanctification means here. Christ has been set apart for service, right? And likewise, the disciples are set apart as well. This is the parallel Jesus began in verse 18, where he says, I have been sent, and I send them. Now, I am, and that closes out in verse 19, I'm set apart, and they are set apart. They're set apart, consecrated, essentially, to do the same thing. This is a sanctifying work. Notice verse back in verse 17, sanctified by the very truth, the word of God's uh, truth. And the goal of that sanctifying work is to set apart the disciples for the work of the ministry. This is what we've been called to do and set apart to do. And I'm going to just get to one more passage And I invite you to turn there, and that is Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 11. The disciples have been set apart for ministry. They will be apostles, okay? Capital A, in a technical sense. But it overflows into all who will follow Christ, and I would conclude that every every, disciple member of the body of Christ in that sense is a minister of Christ is apostle in the small case a a sent one called to engage it is vital for the body it is vital for fulfilling the command now the reason I brought you because it's a shorter passage here that we might be able to get through Ephesians 4:11 here Christ is explaining those that he sent, those that he commissioned, those that he commanded. And he says he gave some the gifts, verse 11 of chapter 4, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Okay? These are unique gifts that are given. And what are they for? They're given to the church, why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These specific offices have a purpose to lead in that. Yes, the apostles are different than the the prophets and the evangelists and different from the 
shepherd teacher, which we currently have now. But the ultimate purpose of them is not that they would be called to some special ministry, which indeed they were, but that they would be utilized to equip others within the body of Christ, that is, all of the body of Christ, to fulfill their roles. Notice verse 13, how that is projected there in this imagery. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a high end, isn't it? And so these apostles are, yes, they're uniquely gifted. And if you have a pastor teacher in the church, okay, they've been uniquely gifted. But for what purpose? Oh, so they would be the hired hand to do the work of the ministry? No, their work of the ministry is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they would build the body up one to another. So that together as looked at as a church that the church would be mature that the church would look like Christ because there are disciples of Christ that are following yeah you engage in ways that are going to be different each individual right gifted in different ways but all necessary and if you want to read about it, I don't have time to go through the text but 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a great section to talk about the body of Christ and how each member is very important to it and the illustration there is is kind of humorous in a way but just imagine this if you if you stub your little toe you you've never thought about your little toe until that happens and then that's all you think about right uh, what, what what most of what your body is about is what you see your face your hair and all of this kind of stuff that's that's out there in the open and that illustrates, of course, the body of Christ, how each part is absolutely vital. Back to our text. What is the purpose and where, what is the direction? So that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, in deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto into him who is the head into Christ whom the whole body joined together by note this every joint which is equipped the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry the body gathers together like a body with all the joints the fascia the uh, every part both seen and unseen public and private which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Beloved, we have a great responsibility. Christ has commissioned all of those that are followers of Christ. This is a command, not an option that everyone would engage in the way that you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit and set apart, that is, consecrated, to do this. It doesn't mean that you're, you're going to completely withdraw from everything else in the world. There may be some that are specifically called to certain tasks to go overseas or to do this job or that, but that's not the majority. 
the majority of the work is done unseen. It is encouraging one another. It's not neglecting to be there for one another, to help one another, to serve one another, to sacrifice one another, when no one even knows what you did, to pray for one another. It's a call for those that are following Christ to set themselves apart. We reap the benefits of those who did before us, don't we? And I call on us to sow those very good seeds in the lives of those who will follow us. And Christ will be with you until the very end of the age. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will seal the truth that Christ has given to his disciples who would be specifically sent to proclaim the word of Christ. And we're thankful that they fulfilled their mission. And I pray that we would do the same. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now, beloved, to think on these things privately where you're at. Respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you.